This morning is June 11th. It is 2006. Our message this morning is going to start in the book of Acts, and the topic is devoted. We're going to be in the second chapter of Acts. We've had a pretty good week. The P. Rose and, and I went on a vacation. And all I can tell you is that I find great comfort in knowing that as I walk on this road of salvation that the Word says is narrow, that there are brothers and sisters who will walk with me. Uh, one of the founding scriptures in this ministry came out of the book of Acts. I drove to Baton Rouge to share it with Matthew and Cassidy as they were considering hearing the call of God to come to this place. And it was that Paul had a vision and then they concluded that it was God's will that they go. One man heard from God and all of the others joined in what he heard. And that was really important because they endured hardship after hardship after hardship. And it would have been very easy to turn and say, well, I don't know why he thinks we should be in Macedonia, but it sure hasn't been good. I believe God is developing in this group of people a devotion to the calling of the church, which is basically to see lives changed at any cost, to put the gospel in any way, shape, or form that will reach people not just so that you build the church. That's totally secondary. On this vacation, we had long discussions about being ministers of the gospel. That's what we are. We're ministers. What we're doing is building a church. And you can't ever confuse what you're doing with what you are. When you meet somebody and they happen to be from out of state, and your first inclination is to be a little bit let down because that won't help you build the church, you can't forget who you are, which is a minister of the gospel. You minister first. Building the church is just the result. Well, I'm excited to be with a group of people that are learning who they are in Christ. Because when you know who you are, you'll do the things God called you to do. The results will happen. Have you ever walked into a garden, heard a bush straining or a tree straining to produce fruit? I ate a watermelon on the beach, so let me tell you, that was good stuff. If you walk into a field where watermelons grow... You don't feel those plants laboring to produce that. You know why? They're watermelon plants. That's just what they do. It's not hard to be a Christian. It's really not. It becomes a way of life, and it's just what you are. You don't have to try to be it. You just are that. I don't have to try to be a preacher. That's just what I am. Matt doesn't have to try to be a worship leader. It's just who he is. In fact, the real awkward times in my life have come when I've tried to be something else. Have you ever noticed in the world there are these fads? Boy, I went through them in high school. There was a rapper named Easy e Yeah, y'all laughing, those of you that know who he is. I could sing his songs, I could dress like him, and I could act like him. That was ninth grade. By tenth grade, Garth Brooks was popular, and my father happened to own a ranch. So I went from Easy e to Garth Brooks and Brooks and Dunn and Reba McIntyre and all those people, and Easy e underwent a miraculous transformation. Now he was wearing boots and jeans. Always searching for an identity. It's funny, I went from admiring music largely produced by African Americans to becoming a racist. All in the space of one year. Searching for an identity, a group, who to belong to. Well, saints, one day in 1993, Jesus spoke to me clearly. Racism laid aside, fads laid aside. I found a way of life. And it has never let me go. And I remember the comments of my friends at least the people that were my acquaintances that we called ourselves friends, they said, oh, his stepfather got to him. 
My stepfather was the superintendent of a large Christian school. Well, it wasn't my stepfather that got to me. It was his father that got to me. And uh, my life's never been the same. Since then, I have practiced something that I think is evident in the Word. So I want to read it to you. Our message this morning is devoted. It's in Acts 2. We're going to start in verse 42. Actually, we're going to start in verse 40. It says, With many other words He warned them. I love when the Bible talks about the preacher speaking with many words. It makes me not feel so bad about preaching too long. I was very tempted to start with Paul and Eutychus. It says, Paul went on and on, and Eutychus fell asleep and fell out of a second-story window. With many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. There was a call that went out to Israel. This is a corrupt generation, and salvation is at hand. Some answered that call. The first thing they did when they answered that call was do something outwardly to show the whole world that they had answered the call to escape their corrupt generation. They were baptized. Funny thing about them, they weren't baptized in a building full of believers. They weren't baptized in secret. They weren't hidden away in some sanctuary specially made for Christians like a sanctuary for birds. They were baptized in the public meeting places of their day at the river where you washed clothes and got drinking water and fished so that everybody would see a change was occurring in their life, a public testimony. If your baptism was something other than that, I'm sorry. That's what it was meant to be. The day I realized I needed to be baptized, I went to a swimming pool, grabbed who was then a 16 or 17-year-old young man and said, baptize me. I wanted it to be public. It was in my apartment complex on a Saturday morning in front of everyone because I wanted the world to know what was happening in my life. These believers accepted the message in that way. And by the way, if you go back and read Peter's sermon, this is not a polite message. It's, you killed the author of life. <laughs> you hung the guy on a tree that came to save us. What a convicting message. It's far from giving away gift certificates and donuts to see people come to an altar. And about 3,000 were added to their number that day. I would say that's a pretty good response. 3,000. Except the whole nation should have run to the message. It's always only a remnant. Verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. They devoted themselves to some things. They devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles. They devoted themselves to fellowship and to breaking bread with prayer. Breaking bread could be the Lord's Supper, but it's more likely the meals that they were having. The loving meals that they were having with each other, which was a form of fellowship and culminated in prayer. These three things are what make Christians strong. There's no real secret to it. Attending a meeting does not make you strong. Hearing a teaching does not make you strong. Saying a recited prayer does not make you strong. And yet this church, because they loved one another deeply, 
because they were involved with each other intimately in every facet of their lives. The Bible's going to go on to say they had all things in common. Because their fellowship was more than a social gathering. I've been in churches where the only reason people fellowshiped was for business networking opportunities. The first church was not that way. Because their prayer was powerful, expectant, believing that God was with them, this church grew daily. I want you to see what happens with them. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. To the world, that sounds like communism. Except it didn't come from a corrupt ruling Politburo. It was a theocracy and it came straight from God. Each believer hearing from God about what they were supposed to do with their life and their possessions. And they came to one conclusion. I'll give all. I'll give everything that I have for the benefit of the church. You can see how easily that message could be corrupted. I read a man's program one time who had a large national ministry and he was encouraging people to leave their estates to the church. Truthfully, it made me want to vomit. Now, it's not that that couldn't be a good thing. There are people in this world that that's what they're called to do. It hurt me because I felt like somebody was taking advantage of the elderly. It's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a loving motivation that says, I will not have a full table and watch Patricia go without food. There is no chance that I will be wearing what's a designer, a Gucci, while my friends cannot afford Walmart. It comes from having all things in common. I'm talking to you about this today because I believe God's building in this church, in His true church, a love for God that puts your brother's needs above your own. One that lays aside what you want to do and lifts up what your brother needs of you. Material things are the last thing that this is important to, but when it's not right in your heart, it's the first place it shows up. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all of the people. I want you to understand that when the church acts like the church is supposed to act, when the church stands up and is really like Jesus, you will enjoy favor with the people around you. That doesn't mean that you will be persecuted by some. It doesn't mean that you won't have hardships of every kind. You certainly will. But everywhere you go, you will also find favor because people are longing to see something real. So often all they hear is Christ in name only. So often all they see is the cross on your neck and the steeple on your building, but they do not see it in our actions. That's why the book of Titus speaks about people who praise God with their lips but deny Him by their actions. And it wasn't a new thought. Isaiah had said it some 740 years earlier. And it's absolutely relevant of the church today. How many people claim to be Christians but do not have the deeds of Christ? I want this to grow. But as Matthew was giving me a fishing lesson this week, I began to think and reflect. The kind of bait that you use determines the kind of fish that you will catch. I don't want this church to grow at any cost. My goal is not for the church to grow. 
My goal is for lives to change. My goal is to see a sincere, real, first century kind of faith. And the result will be that the church grows. I am so excited about what's happened in the last six months. We've seen God answer prayer. We've seen God move in our fellowship. We've seen lives truly changed. There's no question about that. But it's a small scale. It's okay. We're a small church. The changes that have happened in people's lives have been enormous. That encourages me. I'm not looking for a crowd. I'm looking for the core. And I believe that now as we're establishing that core, God will bring more people across us. Not because Eric is fit to minister to them. Not because Matthew is. But because you are. Did you notice that they didn't meet in one big building? Where did they meet? In the people's houses. That means the ministry was not built around Peter. They weren't all at Peter's house. They were in each other's houses. This week while I was gone, what did you do? We met in each other's houses. I've never been prouder than to hear that. This ministry is not Eric Stevens' ministry. It's not Matthew P. Rose ministry. It's life-changing ministries because it's what God will do. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I'm looking forward to the day where we will see people daily saved. Not numbers, not counting numbers of baptisms and reporting them to a denominational headquarters. I've lived in my life to see such that it almost turned us all away from the church. 70% of a youth group go to an altar on a Thursday morning spiritual emphasis week, only Friday night to find themselves in the back seat of cars. I was one of them. Such hypocrisy that the world is turned away and the gospel becomes a stench in their nostrils. But saints, when we get it right, when our lives are founded upon the teachings of the apostles, when they're founded upon the fellowship that we have with Jesus in one another, when they're founded upon an expectant prayer that keeps you in constant communication with God, the right kind are added because you're equipped. It was in this attitude that you find the third chapter of Acts begin. And I think we had a prophecy about this last week. It said, one day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer. Nice time to be at the temple, isn't it? Thanks, you are the temple of God. You're supposed to be at the time of prayer all of the time. In constant communication with your Father, praying without ceasing, so that whatever you may encounter, you feel close enough to God to handle it. At three in the afternoon, it's the time the Jews went to pray, three times a day actually, now a man crippled from earth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. That's not a real high calling in life, is it? No mother wants for their child for them to become a crippled beggar outside of a gate, dependent upon other people. Nobody woke up one day and said, you know, I hope with all of my heart I can aspire to be It wasn't God's will for this man either. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Saints, the world may ask you for all kinds of things because they don't know what they really need. I have a relative that calls me about once a week, so drunk that she doesn't remember the next day. And she is asking for all kinds of things. Never money. But asking for all kinds of things, because she doesn't really know what she needs. 
I want to develop the kind of walk with God. I want to develop in this church the kind of walk that has this response. Peter looked straight at him as did Then Peter said, Look at us. So the man gave his attention, gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. And Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. This guy received something so much more powerful than money that day. But I want you to think about this, saints. How many of us would just walk on by not having any money, which is what the man asked for? How many needs do we pass by every day because we don't have what they're asking for? I don't carry cash around. Some say that's a symptom of marriage. I rarely have cash in my pockets. And when I see a beggar on the street, that's all very first thought. I don't have anything to put in his hands anyway. My second thought is usually there's a reason he's out here and it's not because he's holy. All of those things could be true. I want to develop the kind of walk in closeness with God that sees beyond what they're asking for to the real problem. Peter and John did something for this guy that was awesome. But it came from an attitude. It's that attitude we want to get into today. But I want to read you a story first. You know how preachers read stories? I'm going to confess I got this one out of a book. Hope that doesn't bother you. There won't be three points in a poem that follow it, so set your hearts at ease. It says, An incident is related of a missionary who came into contact with a proud and powerful Indian chief. The chief, trembling under conviction of sin, approached the missionary and offered his belt of a wampum as atonement. If you don't know what that is, ask Matthew after the service. No, said the missionary. Christ cannot accept a sacrifice like that. The Indian departed, but soon returned offering his valuable rifle and most beautiful skins that he had taken in hunting. No, was the reply. Christ cannot accept those either. Again, the Indian went away, only to return with a conscience more troubled than ever. This time he offered his wigwam, together with his wife and his child, everything for peace and pardon. The missionary's reply was no, even to this. Christ cannot accept such a sacrifice. At this, the chief seemed utterly oppressed. But suddenly, somehow he sensed the deficiency. For lifting up tearful eyes, he cried out, Here, Lord, take this poor Indian too. That is the only condition for fellowship with Christ. You give everything that you have. That's awesome. So often, we think we've done our duty to God by showing up in a building or by praying at night before we go to bed or by tipping God in the offering plate. We've done what is required of us. None of those things are what God is after. All of them are a result of what God is after. God is after intimate fellowship with you. He's after you loving Him with all of your heart, soul, mind, strength. All of the other things can be, but are not always, a sign of that. It's true in most churches that only 10% of the people support the church financially. What's funny is 75% of the people lie about it. Isn't that interesting? 
people tend to overestimate their financial faithfulness to a ministry in the same way they overestimate the hours that they spend in prayer. And by some unique, miraculous, mathematical inability, the same amount that they overestimate their time in prayer, they underestimate the time they're watching TV. When God's really moving in a group of believers, you won't think anything. You won't think a single thing about giving the Lord everything that you have because it's all His anyway. Some of you have been to the brink of disaster and you know what I'm talking about. How much better is it though if we don't have to be at the place where we've lost everything to realize it belongs to God anyway? I am so excited to hear that Gabe and Debbie got jobs that are good jobs. To hear that Nick and Lindy got jobs that are good jobs. hear that Mandy and Brad got jobs that are good jobs. I told you in worship, we're going to develop a little teaching called Pray for Rain and Carry an Umbrella. That's birthed directly out of the expectant attitude that I have in prayer now after seeing God come through. Brad had very specific things he was praying for, and he got them. It wasn't without a struggle, but he got them. Mandy had very specific things she was praying for, but she got what she was after because we serve a God who cares. Why was Abraham as blessed as he was? God wanted a means to bless other people. It's time that we begin to take the inventory of our lives and honestly assess whether we are living in the service of God for other people or whether we are living in the accumulation of stuff that I might have called crap for ourselves. Think about that. As I sat on a beach this week, certainly not suffering, I began to think about the hours in my day that are spent doing nothing other than what I want to do. And conviction fell upon me as I began to think about the pastors around the world that are so crowded with people and so hungry with needs that they sleep very little at night and preach services all day. Stephen Hill wrote a book called The Time to Weep. Patricia sent that to me about ten years ago. He talked about his eyes being so dry from the lack of sleep that he could barely muster a tear because the needs of the ministry were so great. And it makes me wonder, why? Surely there are enough Christians to go around. The problem is there are not enough willing Christians to go around. And I want to fix that. I want us to learn to devote our lives to what is important. The place that that starts according to this word starts in verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Saints, as I began to think about this, this was even more convicting. I study. I study on a regular basis. I would venture to say that I study more than most of you. But I also spend an awful lot of time doing other things. And when you relate in some quantifiable way the amount of time you spend studying about the nature, the calling, the depth of the Word of God versus the other things that you do in your life, it is a convicting thought. Say, Eric, this is condemning. It's not condemning. We're called to more than we're doing. It's time that we step up to the plate because God has spent His attention upon you. Think about the way that He has set all of your lives straight 
in the last year. The way that He has fortified you. The way that He has blessed you and that He's strengthening you. And then, in your mind's eye, imagine He didn't do any of it for you. He did it for the people you'll come into contact with. I can't, I can't forget, I can't do away with the thought that God grabbed an insolent young man by the collar who was prone to violence and every other thing that was wrong. And He shook me in such a way that it changed my life. And I didn't do anything really to deserve that. The truth is, I was pretty ticked off the day I got saved. hope that doesn't surprise you. It's the truth. It's mad enough to want to fight. I'd actually rushed a preacher in a service and got tackled by another preacher. Thank God for Keith Biggs, huh? I don't know where he is or what he's doing, but I was glad he was there that day. And he didn't do any of that for me. He did it for you so that you will go do it for other people. The foundation of all that is in Christ comes from the teaching of the apostles. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 32. This one of those messages where a general idea what I wanted to talk about. And as I stand behind this pulpit, I see everything other than what I wanted to talk about. Does it bother you that we don't follow an outline? Deuteronomy 32 teaches us something. Start in verse 30 of 31, actually. And Moses recited the words of this song from beginning to end in the hearing of the whole assembly of Israel. In the hearing of the what? Whole assembly of Israel. Friends, the assembly of Israel is the group of those people who were called out to be princes with God. This word is the same exact word that could be translated church. Moses recited something to the church, the whole church. One of the real problems with preaching and teaching, I'm just being painfully honest here, is that very often the message that needs to be heard by the people is not heard by the people that need it the most because the whole assembly is not sitting before you. There was something else that came up. There will always be something else that comes up. I want you to know, friends, in the last seven or eight years, I haven't interviewed for a single job that I didn't tell the people in the beginning, I will not work on Sundays and Wednesday nights. Now, that was my conviction. I'm not telling you that it should be yours. What I'm trying to tell you, though, is there should be an attitude that says, at all costs, I will make it into the assemblies of saints because there's something there that I need. Because my life's not about acquiring wealth. It's not about acquiring status. It's not about any of those things. It's about being blessed so that I can bless someone else. Moses is speaking to the whole assembly and listen to what he says. Listen, O heavens, and I will speak. Hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. Let my teaching fall like rain and my words descend like dew, like showers on new grass, like abundant rain on tender plants. I will proclaim the name, which is the character of Yahweh. O praise the greatness of our God. When Israel was started, the first church, if you will, when it began, it began with Moses saying, My word should fall on you the same way that water waters a tender plant. The teaching that comes 
from the leaders in the church. It's supposed to fall in your life like water on crops to produce fruit. It's not for your entertainment. It's not so that you'll go, oh wow, we heard a good word today. It's for one purpose. All of the other things just happen to be benefits. It's for the purpose of producing a crop in your life. The messages that Jesus gives, I hope, are entertaining. But that's not the goal. The messages that Jesus gives, I hope, grab your attention. But that's not the goal. The goal is to produce fruit in your life. The church that was Israel began that way. It got fouled up through the years though. And God had to send a conquering nation in. Babylon came. Because of the sin of the people, they fell into captivity. Friends, the church at large is in such captivity that they have no idea who they are anymore. They've spent more years in captivity than in freedom because they have no idea how to break the bonds of sin. They have absolutely no idea how to walk in the power that... And it's for one reason. They hear preaching but do not apply it. The people that come back for counsel again and again and again and again must at some point ask themselves, when do we shut up and do what we were told to do? The church finds themselves in problems in Israel's day. And God raises up a man named Ezra. Actually, he did something quite unique. After Babylon came in and conquered Israel, he raised Persia to come in and conquer Babylon. There was a king named Cyrus the Great who issued a decree to rebuild the temple. And he was so inclined towards the Israelites that he said, look, I'll help you do it even from my treasuries. And the people took with them free will offerings as well. First thing the people did when they realized what was being done for them was they wanted to contribute. They wanted to help. They wanted to give their lives for it. And towards the end of Cyrus' life, the work was not going so well. It happens that when you're building a church, when you're doing the work of God, there are mountaintops and there are valleys. There are times when it seems like you can do no wrong and there are times when it seems like you can do no right. God raised up another Persian leader named Darius. Darius was confused for a little while and he opposed the Jews. But after God had a chance to move on his heart and he reflected on some writings that Cyrus left, He came out in strong support of the Jews. He again opened the treasuries of Persia. He exempted the priests from taxes. And he encouraged God to be done. All of these kings, Artaxerxes, Longimanus, the third Persian, did the same thing. And in Ezra, you'll see why. Turn to Ezra 9. Ezra 7, actually. It's been a while since you read from Ezra. can't find Ezra in my Bible. There we go. Thank you. Ezra 7. Starting in verse 8. Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in the fifth month of the seventh year of the king. He had begun his journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month and had arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month. For the gracious hand of his God was upon him. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to the teachings and to teaching its decrees 
and laws in Israel. God's hand was upon Ezra because Ezra's heart and mind and soul were absorbed into the Word of God. So much so that this foreign king, Artaxerxes, writes a letter. And listen to the things that he says about Ezra. In this, By the way, this king is worshiping other gods, but he notices something in Ezra. This is a copy of the letter King Artaxerxes has given to Ezra, the priest and teacher. He's known as a priest and a teacher. A man learned in the matters concerning the commands and decrees of the Lord of Israel. How many Christians do you meet and in the first place you realize they have no grasp of the Word of God? How can that be? You talk about an oxymoron. How is it that somebody can say, I am Christ, which is what Christian means, and have no grasp of the words of Christ? How many of you shy away from a game of Bible trivia because it's embarrassing? How many of you hope that somebody doesn't ask you where Scripture's found because you're scared? Guys, I understand being timid. Seen an awful lot of it, and at times, key moments in my life where I didn't want to be, I was overcome with it. I know what it is to be weak. But the one thing that we ought to be sure in, the one thing we ought to be confident in, is this book. How many people died to get you the copy that you have? Ezra found favor because he had plunged himself into the Word of God, which meant he had something to offer people. What's so wrong with the church is that we are always eating, but we are never full. We are always eating, we are always absorbing, but we never have anything to give. Because we're eating the teachings of men without absorbing the Word of God. How many sermons have you heard and walked away and thought that was a good sermon and the next week you had no idea what was preached? You didn't meditate. Friends, think about this. What we're talking about, a love for the teachings. I assume that if you're sitting in these seats, it's because God's called you to this church. I assume if somebody's listening to this message on the internet, it's because God and Son has attached them to our church. How many of the 250 messages that we have online for free that you can download any day or night, any time of the day, have you gone back to look at? It's embarrassing for me sometimes to see the numbers there. To spend my heart's energy and what God's invested in me to dig into the deep Word of God. And friends, the sermons that we preach here are not usually incredibly simple. They're the kind of things that could be meditated on for a little while. You see, this has been listened to once in four years. Once. I'm not trying to build our internet ministry. That's not what I'm telling you. I think it's funny. I think it's humorous when people come and talk to me about seminary. It's as if they're asking for someone to force upon them the desire to study. You have got 66 books at your disposal, at your leisure, that were so precious to people that they died to get them to you. And we have to go off to a college somewhere to study? I think seminary is great. I'm glad that people want to study. That makes me excited. But what makes you think you'll do in some college environment what you won't do in the privacy of your home? 
Oh, well, because there's grades. You don't think God is watching your performance now? Oh, because I'm working towards something. I'll get a degree. Do you think God is not working towards something in your study? When Paul told Timothy, study to show thyself approved, was it so that he would get a degree? Or a class ring? How carnal. Now, if you have aspirations for seminary, I'm not discouraging you. I'm saying that should be the icing on the cake. How many of you have ever looked down upon a Pharisee? You know what the Pharisees are most known for? You know what their legacy was in the first century? They taught that the study of the Word was the highest form of worship of God and that you didn't have to go to a temple, that anywhere you could read a scroll in a synagogue put you close to God. You tell me they're behind and not ahead? Maybe we need to reevaluate that. There are books in the Bible that you've never touched? It's funny, we don't have any problem reading novels with half-naked people on the cover, though, do we? Or fantasy of some other kind. This is the word of life. Moses cried out for Israel, I wish my words would fall like water on crops. That's the heart of every real preacher. You hope that your words will have an effect on people because they're not your words. Ezra found favor. I was going to go on to read you this letter, but I'm out of time. I want to tell you this, though. I'm not totally out of time, but I'm needing to get to some other things. The same reaction occurred twice in the Old Testament. At the beginning of the church or Israel, and at the reestablishment of the temple under Zerubbabel and Jehoshua and Ezra and Nehemiah, as happened at Pentecost. The people hear the Word. They're excited. They begin to devote themselves to the teaching in the first place that it shows up is in their deeds. They take off their gold earrings. They go and get things out of their house. They bring some of whatever they have for the work of God. Something is wrong with American Christians that we can sit back and absorb and absorb and absorb with never a thought of returning not only to the people who fed you, but also to people around you. The reason that you can't have the attitude that says, I'll only give to people who give to me. I'll only invest in people that invest in me. is because someone went first. Jesus has invested in you in a way that you could never repay. And what He wants for you is to invest in other people. That means when you're tired, you get out of bed for the benefit of the people on your left and right. That means when you would rather be doing something other than moving on a Saturday, you go even if you don't think you have anything to offer. That's what that means. They devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles that produced in them a desire to fellowship to be around other people who are motivated in the same thing, who are encouraged in the same thing. I look back upon some of my early years in Christianity and we moved every weekend. Every weekend we seemed to be moving. It was amazing. A church of 200 people, you never saw people move so much. I swear they all had 15-day leases. But when I look back about why it was more than tolerable and was actually enjoyable, it was fellowship. We were sharing the Word constantly. You talk about Bible trivia, it's all we did. We'd be going up and down the stairs, and in those days, Matthew could carry a washer and I could carry a dryer by myself. But we were talking about Jesus while we were doing it. 
people have remarked as they came into this church, they really do like to talk about Jesus. Even when they're away from church, they talk, well, yeah, that's normal Christianity. What's going on outside is not normal. It may be common, but it is not normal. To have a church that has no power, that has no prayer, and no real desire to fellowship is not what God wants. That is not normal Christianity. It's the counterfeit. Now, it's easy to point it out at them and go, that's not real. And those guys aren't real. And those guys are fake. But we have to decide for us that we will be real. Our lives need to be devoted to the Word. Devoted to fellowship with each other at any cost. And devoted to expectant prayer. When you move on from there, you find out in Psalm 78 that Israel was commanded, I'm teaching you these things. They'll be life to you. But it's not... It's for your children. And it's not just for those children. It's for your children's children. Then it goes on to say somewhere around the 7th or 8th verse, it's for a people yet unborn. It crosses my mind often that that little boy Judah and Gabe and Abigail, that the things that I'm learning, that I'm hoping to teach them as we go to bed at night and as we wake up in the morning and as we walk along the road, that what I'm investing in them that has been invested in me, That's God's will, that it be passed on. He didn't give it to me so that I would think I was smart. Or so that I would think I know more about the Word than somebody. Or so that I might impress somebody with a Hebrew phrase that I learned. He gave it to me to give to other people. That it would be like water falling on a crop, producing a fruit. I cannot fail in this task. It's my life's calling. It's who I am. Building the church is just secondary. It just happens to be happening as I do what God called me to do. Well, that's me. What about you? What has God called you to do? What makes you excited in the morning? What determines how you will act and what you do? You find those answers in the teaching of the apostles. You should see in their writings. You should see in the Word that God gave us that is a living Word. Living means it interacts with you. Living means it's not just dry when you read it. When Mandy reads this page, at some point, that page begins to speak to Mandy. The problem is we've treated the relationship like a once a month date. How often do you really engage the text? How often do you open your Bible and say, Mighty God, I believe that you speak today, not just in some weird charismatic sense like Eric talks about, but I believe you can speak to me from the Word. I've read this passage maybe a thousand times, or maybe I say a thousand times and have never read it at all, which is probably more accurate. Would you speak to me from it? Something's wrong with the church at large. There is not a hunger for the Word. And the reason there's not a hunger for it is because it's not rare. What makes gold valuable to you? What makes diamonds valuable to you? It's supposed to be because they're rare. It's supposed to be because they're not everywhere. Because they're hard to obtain. If this Word was harder to obtain, if there was not a copy of the Bible in every person's lap in here, if it was something that you had to climb a mountain to get, when you got it, you would read it. Because it came to you at great cost. Well, just because you didn't pay the cost didn't mean it's not rare. Somebody's given you a 10-carat diamond here. Invest in it. Pass it along. It's a family heirloom that can't be stolen. It can't be taken away. It has sustained men in prison cells. It has sustained men who were shipwrecked and spent days and nights in the sea. 
it will give you life. Psalm 78 says, get it, obtain it, and pass it on. Psalm 119 is one that is worth turning to. By the way, when I say word, 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 teaching, word, 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 anytime we're talking about the Tanakh, anytime we're talking about the Torah, anytime we're talking about any of the books that we call the 39 books of the Older Testament, the word's law. That's another teaching. But they certainly didn't see it as a bad thing. By the way, the devotion to the teaching of the apostles, what were the apostles teaching out of? Things that make you go, hmm. You're reading the cliff notes when you read the New Testament, and I think it's great. It's awesome. It's like commentary on the rest of the Word of God, and it is indeed the Word of God. I'm not diminishing it in any way. It's the absolute icing on the cake and the pinnacle of the Word of God. It's the peak of Revelation. But it's like jumping on the top floor without seeing the rest of the building just to read the New Testament. You have no appreciation for it. You just get to the top and go, wow, this is what we were aimed at? No appreciation for how you got there. In Psalm 119, there's a million things that I want to read, but since we don't have time, let's start at 25. I am laid low in the dust. Preserve my life according to Your Word. Where did He get the idea that God wanted to preserve His life? So often the things that we struggle with. You ever heard people talk about low self-image, low self-esteem? That does not come from reading the Word. You cannot absorb the apostles' teaching and have a bad self-image. You can't do it. That comes from absorbing what the world has to say and not what God has to say. It comes from deriving your worth not from the apostles' teaching, from Satan's teaching in Cosmopolitan Magazine and in Oprah and every other ungodly thing. Not preaching against Oprah or magazines. Just happened to come to mind. I hadn't opened a Cosmopolitan Magazine in a... So, I have no idea. Could be wonderful godly stuff, but since y'all are laughing, I'm assuming it's not. I am laid low in the dust. Preserve my life according to Your Word. He knew the Word. That's how He can ask for this. I recounted my ways and you answered me. Teach me your decrees. As he began to reflect on life, he realized, I need something, Lord. I need you to teach me more about you. It's amazing. This man more than likely had all five books of the Torah memorized. And he's asking to be taught. Let me understand your teaching, the teaching of your precepts. Then I will meditate on your wonders. My soul is weary with sorrow. Strengthen me according to Your Word. Want to know why Christians so often dwell in failure? I talked to somebody the other day. And I was just thinking to myself, man, that is awesome. That happens when you read the Word. Wonder why you stumble and you can't walk. Perhaps you are missing the light of God's Word. Or you know it but will not put it into practice. Friends, it's wrong to know that you should be baptized and not. It's wrong to know that you should share financially in something and not. It's wrong to know that Jesus has called you to go to your neighbor's house and not. It's wrong to be disobedient to God. And somehow or another, the longer we sit in it, we think it's okay. 
It's just the way I am. That's why we named this place Life Changing Ministries. The way you see me today better not be the way you see me in a year. I better have changed. If I didn't, I failed. Keep me from deceitful ways. Be gracious to me through your law. Lindy's reading this book, and the part about it that was most shocking to me, this guy does statistics and polls in churches. And I knew that only 10% of most churches, that's not, definitely not true in here, but I knew that only 10% of most churches tithe. I knew that. What I didn't know was 75% of the people polled lied about it. How can we be in Christ? Isn't that amazing? It's bad enough that only one-tenth of the church supports the church in most churches. But what was worse was that 75% of the people lied about it. That, that's amazing. What happens when you have ears and don't hear and eyes and don't see? You thought those words were just written for Israel? Since every move of God that's ever happened happened with sincere, powerful people who wanted to do something. In fact, the denominations I'm so fond of picking on started in power. John Wesley was an awesome human being. I've got a book that is about his life in one of the libraries in the other part of the house. He's an awesome guy. When you go into a Methodist church today, perhaps a United Methodist church, if it doesn't resemble John Wesley, that's not John Wesley's fault. Somewhere along the line, what started in power ended up just ritual. Saying the right words but having no idea what they meant, that's where most of the church is today and I'm not talking about the Methodist church. Some of the men that were involved in the Azusa Street revivals would puke if they were in Pentecostal churches today. Keep me from deceitful ways. Be gracious to me through your law. I have chosen the way of truth. I have set my heart on your laws. I hold fast to your statutes. Do not let me be put to shame. I run in the path of your commands, for you have set my heart free. One of the most amazing things about the Word is that when you begin to absorb the teaching of the apostles, there's a freedom that comes with it. So often what has bound us in our conceptions of Christianity were not based upon the Word. And we find freedom in actually getting into the Word. Quit depending on some man to tell you what the Word says. Quit depending upon leaders in the church to teach you all you need to know about the Bible. You have an obligation. Your obligation is to find out for yourself. What I'm supposed to be doing is help to spark your interest, to help keep you on a right track if you're going off into weirdness. I'm supposed to lay down a pattern for you to compare your studies against. What you didn't hear in any of that is I'm supposed to study for you and feed you everything that you eat. The church is malnourished because it's lazy. It's on a spiritual diet of at most a bite a week. That's wrong. Saints, there has got to be a love in us for the Word. And you say, well, it's just hard to read. That's because you're not reading it enough. Exercise is not fun for the first few weeks. But those that learn to love it can't do without it. I understand that about the Word and can't do it in exercise. <laughs> Change me, O Lord. Sets you free. Proverbs 1 says that 
the teaching that comes from God, if you absorb it, it will be like a garland around your neck, like a chain that's pretty and shows everybody that you are achieving something. Everywhere that I've ever found real favor in a secular work setting, the people didn't understand what it was. They said things like, you know, Eric has more maturity than another 19-year-old. Or things like, where did that young man gain that experience? It was all from the Word. If they had any idea that none of those thoughts and phrases were my own. You know, it's a funny thing. They call it business coaching now. And it is nothing more than applying scriptural principles and calling them something other than Scripture. Teach you how to diffuse a situation by speaking kindly to someone. Oh, well, where did they get that idea? The Christian with eyes to see sitting in those meetings bored to death wondering why on earth they don't understand what they're saying. But you're happy if they apply any of it. No different than the church. Happy if they apply some of it. In Proverbs 3, we find the results of teaching. Let's go ahead and get there. I don't do series very often, but this may turn into a series because I'm on one of three parts halfway through. preacher told me in a coffee shop not long ago that if it couldn't be said in an hour, it didn't need to be said. That was convicting to me. It bothered me. I thought about it a lot. And I noticed that this guy is in a series of eight and nine messages every time I've ever talked to it. They're all alphabetical and in acronyms. It's all how you package it, huh? Proverbs 3, verse 1, My son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart, for they will prolong your life many years and bring you prosperity. You want to know what the prosperity gospel is? The real prosperity? Absorb the Word of God and you'll prosper in all you do. That's the real prosperity gospel. Apply the Word in your life and it works. (laughs) No real mystery there. Formula. You don't have to know how to read Hebrew or Greek or send in 1995 for a message. Read the Word. Apply it. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Love the Lord. Be faithful to what He says. Cling to that. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. The early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And what happened? They won favor with God as evidenced by His presence in their meetings, the miracles. They won favor with man didn't, didn't Acts 2 say that? How did they get it? The first thing they did was devoted themselves to teaching. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. It is not always true that sickness is the result of sin. The Bible tells that over and over and over. But I can tell you that I have met people and not at all been surprised they were eating up with cancer. They were eating up with hate. It's just cancer of another kind. Eating up with bitterness. And I can assure you that the lack of applying God's Word in your life can cause physical symptoms in your life. If you don't believe me, read Corinthians 10 and 11. People died for doing the communion with an unwholesome heart. And he didn't say that they were all dead. He said, sick and have fallen asleep. 
Think I'm trying to scare you? Maybe a little. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruit of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. I thought about leaving that verse out because it makes me uncomfortable to talk about money. There are a lot of reasons that it makes me uncomfortable. One is that it's abused so often. You know, Jennifer and I have a standing joke when we flip through the channels. We wait to see how long it takes the TV preacher to begin to talk about money. But just because I'm uncomfortable with it doesn't mean I don't have an obligation to teach what is true. Saints, you've got to honor God with your whole lives. Because it's the right thing to do. If that's not enough motivation for you, because there are other people depending on you now at this point. If you come here one day and there's no lights, it's because we didn't raise the money for lights. You know? That's just how that works. Imagine Old Testament Israel for a minute, and I'm going to leave this subject because I really do have to move on. Everywhere there were ten men, you could have a synagogue. You know why? Because ten men giving a tent supported one man to minister to them. That wouldn't work in the American church, would it? You'd need 100 men to support one man. God gave us a Sabbath, one day in seven, to rest. We took two. Everywhere in America is excess except in faithfulness to God. I spent more than $100 on a meal this week. More than $100 on a meal for four people. And I enjoyed it. It was fun to do. I don't really regret it, but I have thought many times since then what $100 would do for somebody. I'm not telling you all that so you feel bad when you go out to eat. God's given you good things and He wants you to enjoy it. That's not the part. That's, that's not the point. I wished with all of my heart that I knew that I had applied the teaching to the point where I didn't need to feel the slightest bit guilty about spending $100 because I'd been hearing from God about every other dollar that I had. See, you can do that kind of stuff with a totally clear conscience and have a blast when you know that you know that you know God's been God of your finances. But you should feel guilty when He's not dead. We watched a show the other day on women sold into sexual slavery. Eastern European women sold into Muslim countries. And it shook me for days. I'm way off topic here, but I just have to tell you about it. It shook me for days. It hurt. These women, one was a mother, four months pregnant. A friend tricked her to going to Istanbul to buy groceries to resell in their poor little country. And that friend then sold her to a pimp for $600. They killed her baby and put her in a dungeon. Did you hear what I said, though? It was for $600. If I knew a reputable way, some way to know that I could get the money to those women, wouldn't you give $600 for somebody's life? I surely would. I surely would. Well, God knows, and He understands. I'm not saying that we are alleviated from a responsibility to do something about that situation or every other one. But what I am saying is that we need to be open to God speaking to us. And if you can't get it right with the first little part of what He's given you in your local church, how on earth would you be used around the nations? Now, I'm going to leave that subject because there's a problem. If you have guys sprinting, doing wind sprints, and the coach makes them all sprint, and three of them are running as hard as they possibly can, 
and two are not. And he keeps making them run again and again and again because two are not. He kills the three who are doing good. And most of you are doing so good. I am so proud to be around you. You excel in everything that you do. And the few that are struggling in different areas, all of you are struggling in some areas, I just hope to encourage. I want this church to be a real church. And I believe it is. And I believe it's time for the next wave. As much as Proverbs 3 tells us about benefits of applying the teaching, Malachi tells us about the hardships of not. In the second chapter of Malachi, the priests are condemned for showing partiality in the law and not teaching the real Word. And you know, it showed up in two areas. Divorce, which was a break in fellowship with man, and in robbing God. Not giving of your life for the Gospel. It's amazing. When you apply the teaching, when you absorb the teaching, it just comes natural. It's the easiest thing in the world to do. When you don't, what comes natural is division and divorce all around you, and you begin to hoard things for your life fearful that you won't have if you give. The difference is teaching. We need to reshape our lives. If you have a hunger to be in ministry, and several of you have expressed that to me, you need to be filling your life constantly. I can tell you, it's been 13 years for me now, and I've had a voracious appetite for the Word that I just want to be honest. I'm not lifting myself up. I haven't seen that in any of you. I really haven't. Not like it consumed me. We don't have to compare ourselves with one another. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is, don't think you'll be a competent minister of the Gospel if you do not absorb the Word. Because we're not ministering our personalities. We're not ministering our character. We are ministering the Word of God to people. I've absorbed the Word as much as I possibly can and I am still falling short. You see that all of the time. I get it wrong so much of the time. That ought to spur you on. It ought to spur you on. We're going to need to close, but I want to turn with you to John 8. I'm going to try to read two or three Scriptures and then we'll close. These will all be New Testament Scriptures, so you'll have them all memorized. In John 8, verse 31, you see something familiar. To the Jews who had believed in Him, Jesus said, If you hold to My teaching, you are really My disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. How many times have you heard that verse quoted? You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. But you don't hear the first part quoted very often. If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The reason the American church has been subject to every fad from gold dust to feathers to praying over handkerchiefs to every other weird thing you can imagine is because it doesn't know the Word. That's just the God's honest truth. Does not know the Word. People come out of their master's commissions. They come out of their seminaries. They come out of their churches with 20 years of listening to messages and not knowing the Word. And most of the time, it's not the institution's fault. You've been in a church where they only preach from the four Gospels? Well, shame on you for not reading the other books, the other 23 books in the New Testament, much less 39 in the Old. One of the first things Matthew and I noticed in the church setting that we came from, especially in the early days, 
is that in a year's time, people had absorbed the Word where they outpaced the 20-year Christians all around them. That shouldn't be. When you're 18, 19 years old, you're stupid. I mean, that is the God's honest truth. You're dumb about life. And when you can absorb enough of the Word that your behavior begins to be more godly than the 20-year Christians, shame on the 20-year Christians. I do not want that to be true here. You guys are the example for the next wave that will come in, and it comes from absorbing the Word. It will set you free. By the way, where do you think Jesus got the idea it will set you free? You think maybe you read Psalm 19, 119? Turns me to Acts 5. We're going to read two more scriptures. We are closing. Because if I give you too much, then you won't have anything to read on your own this week. Honestly, guys, when we had envisioned the Internet ministry, we didn't envision it as people who were missing church. We didn't envision it as a way to sit home and still get the teaching, although that's a benefit, and I'm glad it's there. We would envisioned it so that people could reflect on messages. They could outline them, take them further than the pastor did, come back, teach on them, and share good things. You know, I look back over some of those messages and then one day I taught about the life of Daniel. Do you think I could begin to even skim the surface of the life of Daniel in a day? My hope is that somebody would go, wow, that was interesting. Let me go find out the rest about Daniel's life. I taught about Nehemiah's walls. It was a 78-minute message. Do you think in 78 minutes you could learn what you need to know about Nehemiah? How many of you have downloaded those messages and seen where it was going and took it further? See, what we're looking for is for people to come with a psalm, a hymn, a prophecy, a testimony, a teaching, a revelation. We even opened up one service a week for nothing but questions to aid you in your study. Show me somewhere else that's doing that because I want this to get in you. I know that it's the way for the church to grow right. Does that make sense to you? I know that it will work if people will do it. You all in Acts 5? In Acts 5, Peter and John have gotten a beating a beating. Any of you ever been beaten for the gospel? No hands are going up. What a blessed country we live in, huh? The apostles, verse 41, left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering the disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. They were being beaten and you couldn't stop them from studying and teaching. What stopped you? Friends? Seinfeld? Simpsons? 24? Season's over. That excuse is gone. I don't know whether that TiVo box I have in there is the single greatest invention or the single worst in my life. Used to be if I missed the show, I had nothing to do but study. Now it's waiting there for me. You know? I actually love it. I just need to be disciplined. In Romans 16, we're told to watch out for those whose teaching is contrary to what they received. In 2 Timothy 1, this is a good one. Paul says, look, you know the pattern of teaching which I gave you. I want you to compare everything to that pattern. Our hope is that in this church you'll receive a skeleton, a framework of teaching that in your own studies you can compare it with, that you can go, wait, How should I view this? I don't understand. Does this happen or not happen? Well, what do I already know that I've been taught? And it'll be a framework that helps you build. Every once in a while, we have to adjust even that pattern. We do that together. 
It's the other reason we have Wednesday nights. You can challenge anything that's taught. Shame on you if you don't do that. You should. I don't get everything right. Make me feel better to know you were double-checking every scripture that I read you. My favorite, though, what makes this work is 2 Timothy 3. We'll read this in close. In 2 Timothy... You know, one of the things that makes this such a powerful thing to me is not just to get you to read. You can never read and it be enough. I'm not trying to condemn you for that. You could read three hours a day and need to read five. You could read five and need to read ten. It's not about works. It's about developing a love for the Word. The biggest reason is, in almost every case, two Christians have division between them. In almost every case, it comes from somebody not really knowing how to apply the Word. In almost every case... And you start to hear opinions quoted as scriptures. You know? It is the hardest thing in the world for me to be in a conversation with somebody. And they say, well, yeah, well, it, it also says, knowing that it does not say what they just said it says. And there is no graceful way to point it out. Sometimes I just sit quietly. Other times I ask you, show me. You know? It's not because I want to be argumentative. It's because this is what our lives need to be founded on. I worked with a guy one time. Early on in Christianity, first six months, who had a special talent for quoting Scripture that was not Scripture. I bought my very first Bible concordance and put it in the truck between us as we went to work. And every time he quoted a Scripture that was not a Scripture, I asked him to find it and gave him the concordance. Our day became silent very quickly. Are you all in 2 Timothy 3? Last Scripture. 2 Timothy 3 starting in verse 10. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings. What kinds of things happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra? The persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. What I want to be able to be said of each of you is that you could look at your peers that are around you in the church and outside the church say, friends, you know all about my teaching and follow it with the phrase, my way of life. Not enough to hear teaching. Not enough to be able to recite teaching. It has to be your way of life. And when you do that, you'll have favor with God and man. You'll see the church grow daily in number. You won't have to work to witness to people your life will be a witness to people. I've lived long enough now to see some that I prayed for to get saved and filled with the Holy Ghost go on to be with Jesus. Others to be ordained and others to fall away. What a hard feeling that is. When I think back about how they came to Christ, I cannot think of a single one that I led in the Roman road to salvation are trapped in the Christian witness training or seized an opportunity in an elevator with a trapped audience. Not one. What I can think of in every one of their cases is people who saw some act of kindness, a couch being delivered, something done in secret, something done that let them know this is real. And it earned favor with God and man and eventually Jesus revealed himself to them in a new way. It was always done that way. That comes from applying the teachings, not just knowing them. It comes from it becoming a way of life.
I pray that you become devoted to the teaching. Next week, we very well may, but I don't know for sure, talk about how to be devoted to fellowship. That has a whole other list of benefits, a whole other reason, and how to be devoted to prayer. Y'all stand up. Let's pray.